Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hits. We've been talking a lot about pandemics. We've been talking a lot about societies responding to moments of crisis. And one that springs to mind, of course, is the end of the First World War, which coincided not just a pandemic, outbreak of influenza, which we've been talking a lot about on the podcast, but also a world that had been dislocated by a gigantic global conflict. I decided that I would get Margaret McMillan, Professor Margaret McMillan, back on the podcast. She is one of the world's leading historians of 20th century international relations. She is an all-round legend. She's also my aunt, but lots of other people think she's a legend too. It's not just me. And she's also the award-winning writer of the best-selling book about the Treaty of Versailles, Peacemakers, it was called in the UK in Paris, 1919, in North America. I thought I'd get her on to talk about how just the extent of the damage after the First World War and how the world responded to it or didn't respond. This was first broadcast on my new History Hit Lives. If you go over to YouTube, to the Timeline channel, you'll see my History Hit Lives. We're going out three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 4pm UK time, 11am Eastern and 8am Pacific time. We've talked to lots of different people. We've talked about the Maya. We've talked about pandemics, talked about the First World War. So this is one that I thought would be good to share with the podcast because Margaret is always, always great value and says important and interesting stuff. If you want to see Margaret, we've got her explaining why the First World War started over on History Hit TV. It's our new history channel. If you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free and then you get the first month for just one pound, a euro or dollar. So do go and check that out on History Hit TV. Make sure you use the code. In the meantime, everyone, here's Margaret. Enjoy. Margaret, thank you so much for coming on this brand new History Hit Live. This is really exciting. Well, it's really fun to be in at the beginning of something like this. Now, let's talk about the First World War. You've written the monster book on the outbreak of the First World War. You've also dealt in your multi-prize winning books about the end of the First World War. But let's talk briefly about the war itself. We talk of it as a world war. What does that what does that actually mean? Because we think of the fighting in France and Belgium, but it, it, was, it, it, it should properly be thought of as a global conflict, shouldn't it? I absolutely agree. I mean, I think we tend, for obvious reasons, in countries such as Britain to focus on the Western Front, because that's where so many British soldiers were. But the war was truly global. There was fighting in the center of Europe, massive fighting in the center of Europe, fighting in the Balkans, fighting in the Middle East, fighting in Africa, wars at sea in the Atlantic and the Pacific, fighting in Asia. So yes, it was a truly global war. And what is more, soldiers from around the world came to fight in different parts. So half a million Indian soldiers came to fight in the Middle East and in Europe. Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, Newfoundlanders, South Africans all came to fight in Europe. So there was huge movements of people around the world. It's fascinating to me that something like 70 million military personnel were mobilized from all of these powers, as you say, from, from, from Congo to Canada. Why was it just on such a gigantic scale compared to the wars that had gone on 
you know, a generation or particularly maybe a hundred years before? Was it, was it the Industrial Revolution that intervened in the meantime? It was partly the Industrial Revolution because that made it possible. I mean, the limits on war before the 19th century had always been that you couldn't feed and transport and look after that many soldiers. You simply ran out of supplies and you didn't have the means to bring in fresh supplies on a large scale. What the Industrial Revolution made possible was you could put uniforms on millions of men, you could give them weapons, you could give them trucks, you could give them bicycles, and you could keep them there because you had railways and steamships and motorized vehicles which would bring up the supplies, which is why the war, First World War and the Second World War were able to last for so long. But I think what also made this a global war and a massive war, a total war, we had to invent a new term for it actually, it was the first time we really began to talk total war, was that the war which started in Europe and started, I think, very much as a result of European rivalries, brought the rest of the world in very largely because Europe had empires. And so the Europeans controlled most of Africa, they controlled large parts of Asia, they controlled parts of the Americas. And so that made it a global war because it was a war not just of European nations, but their empires. Speak, speaking of empires, as you'll know as a Canadian, uh, I, I think often about the, the huge you know, Canadian you know, effort that was made at the Battle of, well, we call it the Battle of Passchendaele, 3rd April in 1917. Take a battle like that, you know, something like on both sides approaching a million men killed and wounded. And we think, what, I mean, maybe like a, a four mile advance in six months. I mean, these battles are just, they're like almost like nothing else in history to that point. Now, one of the tragedies of the First World War, I think, was that the technology had advanced so that it was much easier to defend than to attack and you needed overwhelming force to attack. And they were beginning to learn by 1917 how to do it. But what resulted, certainly after 1914, for three years and more, was a stalemate. And even if you did advance, say, 500 uh, uh, yards or a mile, you couldn't advance further because the ground was so cut up, because the very shells that you had used to prepare the way for the attack had made it almost impossible to move further. Uh, we talk about the, the, the human cost of the war. We've got perhaps, you know, nine or 10 million military dead, incalculable numbers permanently maimed or psychologically scarred, and then millions of civilians as well. I mean, this was something, and then that's before we even get to this pandemic outbreak of flu that follows, well, that starts during the war and then is unleashed on the world. Yes, I think you can understand when you look at those figures, the deaths and the casualties and, and the permanent damage that was done, and not to mention the destruction of, of land, of mines, of railways, of harbors. You know, this was a massively destructive war. And you can understand why people looked in 1918 and said, what have we done to ourselves? And is, is Europe and is the world ever going to be the same? I mean, I think people really do see and did see then the First World War as some sort of dividing line between a different perhaps more innocent world, perhaps a little bit more peaceful world, and this world of, of, of the post-1918 period. And what's extraordinary is that when the fighting stopped, it seems like on, on, sort of on one level, that wasn't the end of people's troubles. If anything, it, could have, it got kind of worse. I mean, what state was the world in, in 1918, when, the, when the, the fighting stopped? Well, Europe in particular was shattered. I think, and a lot of Europeans talked about the, the end of their civilization, but other parts of the world had, had been very much affected by the, by the war as well. Their resources had been drained, their young men had been taken away, and of course a lot of those young men weren't gonna come back again. The fighting stopped between the powers in 1918. Of course, part of the tragedy was that it didn't stop everywhere, and there was going to be fighting in the center of Europe 
in the Balkans, in the Middle East, until well into the mid-1920s. And I think there was also a level of violence in politics, which people hadn't perhaps seen before. And a lot of people would put that down to the fact that so many people had been brutalized by the war. There was also a sense, not just of the loss and the continuing violence that, that worried people, but a sense that something crucial had been broken in Europe. Political structures were collapsing, particularly in the center of Europe. There, were, there was a revolution in Russia, and it looked very much like there might be revolutions elsewhere. There was briefly for six months a communist government in Hungary, for example. And so there was a feeling that the world had come through one catastrophe and maybe trembling on the edge of something even worse. And because so many empires had collapsed, Austria-Hungary, for example, which controlled most of the center of Europe, had collapsed, whole economic structures had collapsed. So people weren't getting the food they needed. They weren't getting the coal they needed. Bakers couldn't bake bread to feed people because they couldn't get the wheat, which used to come in on railways and steamships and barges, and they couldn't get the coal to light their ovens. And so you began to get people starving and people dying of the sort of illnesses that come along with, with, with misery and poverty. Typhus began to spread. But of course, the worst disease of all and the one that made people talk about sometimes the four horsemen of the apocalypse was the Spanish influenza, probably unfairly called after Spain, but we, we tended to give geographical names in those days. It may have killed from the time it started, probably starting somewhere at the end of 1916, but really reaching a sort of crescendo in 1918 and going on into 1919 again with the second wave. It may have killed as many as 50 million people around the world. I mean, these figures are almost impossible to understand. And one of the horrifying things about the Spanish flu, I think, to everyone, was that it took the young. It took people between about the ages of 26 and 32, and, and was so quick. Someone would be live and healthy one day, dead the next. I've done several podcasts on, on Spanish flu recently because people are talking about the pandemic, of course. And it is astonishing to think that if you were 28, 29, 30, you were particularly vulnerable to it. And imagine these veterans coming back, thinking they've survived the war, or people who work themselves the bone in factories or in the field, and then they succumb to Spanish flu in the winter of 1918, 1919. I mean, it just feels an epic, epic tragedy. I think this is how people felt, and, and you can understand this feeling of despair that must have hit a lot of people. And of course, the authorities didn't know how to deal with it. I mean, we know much more now about how you deal with epidemics on this scale. And so they made mistakes. Um, they allowed people to go out. They allowed people to go to victory parades. And that, of course, just helped to spread it further. And they didn't know how to treat it. I mean, American doctors in Paris were saying, perhaps a good treatment for, for the flu, if you get it, is to smoke lots of cigarettes, which is probably the worst thing you could have done. Okay, Margaret, we've seen recently a $2 trillion aid package that's just passed the House and the Senate in the US. We've seen other countries act in the same way. Unprecedented amounts of state action to try and ameliorate the economic effects of the current pandemic. What were governments able to do? What did they try to do to rebuild in 1918 and after that? Governments in those days didn't have the same attitude towards the economy and I think didn't understand as much about the economic levers that they possessed as they understand today. And so the reaction in most governments after the First World War was let's cut back the level of spending. It, it was way too high and we've had to tax people way too much for this war. Let's get right back to peacetime. In the case of Britain, let's go back on the gold standard, which in fact turned out to be very bad for British exports. But there was a sense that we've got to stop spending money. And so really what they did was it was an early version of austerity. 
And it was probably exactly the wrong thing to do if you wanted to get the world's economies going again. To begin with, it didn't do anything for the veterans who were coming back, and that caused a lot of real social tension. I mean, people were fed up. They came back from the war. They couldn't get houses. They couldn't get jobs. And you began to get a lot of discontent and a lot of violence and, and, and trouble in certain countries. And also, you had businesses not able to function because they couldn't get the supplies they needed. They couldn't get the export markets they needed. And so I think, in retrospect, they would have been wise of the world statesman to follow the advice of John Maynard Keynes, who was in that point not a famous economist, but was a young official of the Treasury, who said, what we've got to do is get Europe's economic engines going again. But that didn't happen. And part of the problem was also the United States, which had become the great lender during the First World War, was not prepared to go on lending money. It, it was insisting on being paid back. I mean, it would lend the money, but it would charge interest rates and insist on being paid back. And so the European countries in particular found themselves struggling with huge, massive social problems. They were trying to cut and balance the books. And that, in fact, contributed to a depression in the years immediately after the war, which, of course, hurt even more people. So, yeah, I mean, it's just when you add it all up, I mean, you've got the pandemic, uh, you've got governments stopping spending, I suppose, but you've got people returning to the workforce. You've got revolutions as well. I mean, you've got, you've got uh, you know, Bavaria, for example, is a sort of anarchic state. I mean, it, it's how did statesmen even, and you know, some stateswomen as well, how did they try and manage this? Or, were they, or do you see them as almost being sort of victims of events? Well, I think they, they manage as best they can, but they actually don't have that many levers. And in many cases, they're swept along by events. And, and of course, a lot of the statesmen of countries such as in countries such as France and Britain and the United States and other countries in, in Western Europe were really afraid of revolution because they could look eastwards and they could see what had happened in Russia. And the Bolsheviks had taken over. They were in the process of winning their civil war. No one knew what sort of society they were going to create, but it appeared very appealing. And a lot of people in Italy, in France, in Britain, around the world, particularly people who were deprived and, and suffering, looked to Russia and thought, that's what we want. And so for the statesmen, there was this fear that they were facing economic issues, economic problems, also the possibility of revolution from within. And they really, I think, floundered. I mean, there were various schemes floated to try and get Europe's economy going again. And eventually, eventually by 1925, after a lot of people had suffered, Europe began to recover the levels of production and output and consumption that it had had in the pre-war period. But it took a long time and it came at a real political cost. I mean, one of the reasons Mussolini got into power in Italy in 1922 was partly because of the economic catastrophes that were happening in Italy and the failure of the government to deal with it. Let's take a snapshot of the globe, if you like. Some of the most important and powerful players of the previous two, three, four hundred years just disappear in a, in a space of a few months. The Romanovs, so Romanov Russia, the Russian Empire's gone. The Ottoman Empire that, that had ruled what we've now called sort of the Middle East, Turkey, the Middle East, for centuries, gone. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Habsburg, gone. And what condition was, say, you know, China, France, Britain and the USA? I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. 
Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Well, it depended very much on the country. The USA was actually in fairly good condition. The war, of course, it led to loss of American lives, but it had in some ways been good for the United States. It had stimulated the American economy. The United States had become the lender too much of the rest of the world. And so this really is a moment when the United States begins to become a world power, a very considerable world power. For Japan, the war itself had actually been, Japan was an ally in the First World War. It had been quite a good war. It had seized territory in the Pacific and in China that it had always had its eye on, although Japan too had a slump after the war was over. But it was the countries in, in the center of Europe, I think, who suffered most. France and Britain weathered the storm, although it wasn't easy for them. But the countries in the center of Europe, many of them knew, many of them appearing on the map for the first time, were small, insecure, they'd been fought over often, they didn't have the means to really help themselves. And of course, because they were new, they, they, they were intensely nationalistic and they fell often to, to quarreling with each other. So it was a very bad situation, I think, particularly in the center of Europe. Margaret, you've done such a huge amount of work on the Paris Peace Conference. Some people call it Versailles, but the reason it was signed in the Palace of Versailles in 1919. What was the idea behind gathering up all of these politicians from all over the world for one huge power? The idea was that the Allies would get together and draw up their preliminary terms, and then they would have a big peace conference. I mean, the, the Paris Peace Conference started out as the preliminary peace, peace conference, and they were modeling it on the Congress of Vienna, which had met at the end of the Napoleonic Wars to try and put Europe back into, into order again and, and try and deal with the defeated France. In fact, there were too many allies. There was something like over 30 allies. And the conference itself was unwieldy. And it took them so long to come up with the peace terms they were going to offer to Germany, which was the key country among the defeated, that they didn't dare bring the Germans in and start negotiating all over again. They were afraid the whole conference would fall to, fall to pieces. So it was a chaotic event. It was turned out completely unlike what they thought it would turn out. 
But what they did was cobble together peace terms, which were then offered to Germany, basically on a take it or leave it basis, which is something, among other things, that the Germans resented bitterly in the 1920s and 1930s. Is that because Germany, of course, was no longer imperial Germany, the Hohenzollerns, the Kaiser Wilhelm was gone. This was now the so, you know, socialist democratic republic of Germany. Yeah, Germany had undergone a tremendous change. And I think we have to remember just how young a country Germany was. I and mean, we think of Germans always having been there in the center of Europe. But Germany as a country was only formed in 1871. So it enjoyed about 40 years of being Germany, the, the Imperial Reich. Suddenly that vanishes and they become a constitutional democracy. And for a lot of Germans, it was deeply upsetting. They had seen one sort of society, they built a Germany, suddenly it disappears from under them. But there were other problems in Germany. I mean, I think there was an unwillingness to accept that Germany had lost the war. And that was going to gain be a very important political factor in the 1920s and 1930s. Germany had lost. It had lost on the battlefields. It was basically done by the autumn of 1918. It, its armies, its navy could not fight on. But gradually, as peace came, the generals who'd been responsible for the catastrophe began to say, we could have fought on. Um, we could have fought on. We really should have been able to fight on. It was only the cowards at home who stabbed us in the back. And you've got this pernicious myth that Germany was stabbed in the back by, and you can probably list in, in your own mind, the liberals, the social democrats, the communists, and the Jews. It was a very nasty bit of anti-Semitism now beginning to emerge in Germany. And so you had a deeply unhappy Germany. And the problem with that was Germany was still a very powerful country. It sat right in the heart of Europe. And you could argue, in fact, and I would argue that it was more powerful in a curious way post-1918 than it was before, because it no longer had a common border with Russia, which had scared the German high command silly because they saw a big Russia with more potential soldiers and, and developing very fast. There was now Poland in between. And instead of Austria-Hungary, with which Germany had had a very complicated relationship and often unfriendly relationship, there were now a, lot of, a whole lot of small states who quarreled with each other, which left the way open for Germany to play off one against the other. So Germany still remains very powerful. It still has a big population and its infrastructure basically hadn't been touched by the war because the fighting wasn't on German soil. So the, the Allies are accused of being far too harsh on this new Germany because they, for example, they imposed reparations. Money had to be paid to the Allies for the damage caused and things. Do you think the Germans were, were treated particularly harshly by the Allies? I don't think they were treated any more harshly than anyone who lost a war in that period or in the 19th century or earlier was treated. When the German Confederation defeated France in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871, Germany, the new Germany, imposed a very harsh peace on France. The French had to pay for a German occupation until they'd paid a huge fine. And it's been estimated, this is only an estimate, it's been estimated that France actually paid Germany more proportionate to its economy and its, its revenue in 1871 than Germany was asked to pay post-1919. It was understood that if you lost a war, you sacrificed things. You gave up your art treasures, you paid money, you lost territory. And so I don't think the treaty was that harsh, except that people were now expecting a different sort of world. And the American president, Woodrow Wilson, had said, I want a piece of no retribution. And so people in Germany and elsewhere thought, look, this is a bit unfair to actually punish Germany for it. The other problem was that the reparations were never really paid. Um, some of them were paid. The Allied leaders knew that Germany would never pay the whole bill, but they didn't dare tell their own publics that. 
And that was a problem. Politically, it was very difficult. And very few allied statesmen had the courage to say to their own publics, look, we'd be better off not trying to get anything out of Germany. We'd be better off just getting on with it again. The publics wouldn't have gone for it in 1919, maybe later, but not in 1919. It feels that at, in Paris, there's two different things going on. There's a sort of slightly more old fashioned um, 18th, 19th century idea of stripping bits of territory away from defeated enemies. Then there's also this strand, perhaps epitomized by Woodrow Wilson, the American president, of, of building a new world of utopianism, of, of an international order to make sure this can never happen again. Is that true? And, and were they in, in conflict with each other? I think, yes, I think a number, they, well, they were in conflict. And I think a number of things were going on in Paris. I mean, there was one, the old fashioned thing, how do we treat the defeated and how do we get some recompense for what's done to us? And, you know, you can understand the French position. Everyone sees the French as vindictive. France had not attacked Germany in 1914. Germany had declared war on France and it had been on French soil that the fighting had taken place. And so you can see the French point of view. Why should we pay for a war that we didn't start in the first place? So there was that, there was who, who pays for the war and how do you punish those who, who started the war? There was also the whole issue of how do we just manage the unfolding situation in Europe and, and try and deal with all these new states that are emerging and how do we try and divide up the Middle East? How, there were lots of other things on their plates. And then there was also this idea that perhaps we can do better. I mean, there was this sense that Europe could never go through a war like this again. It would be the end of European and perhaps Western civilization. And so there were a lot of people, both in the United States and, and the New World, but also in Europe, who said, look, something better has got to come out of this catastrophe. And so what Woodrow Wilson was talking about was, I think, a vision, but a very important vision. And all these different sorts of strands didn't mesh neatly with each other, but you can understand why they're there. You, you've always spoken so beautifully about how individuals matter. We're all talking about these big strategic ideas and the economies of Europe. But you also have made it very clear that in the room, in the room where it happened, the mood of Lloyd George or Woodrow Wilson or who was sick or Clemenceau, the French premier being a surviving assassination attempt, that already mattered as those months went along. It did, I think, because it was an extraordinary event. I mean, we will never again, I think, see leading world statesmen spending six months in one place. And you think of the G7 or G20, how long they last. I mean, they last for, what, two and a half days, even less if President Trump has his way. So I think it's, it's really an extraordinary event. And they meet every day, pretty much, and they chat. And they don't always like each other. I mean, Lloyd George is, is not trusted by Woodrow Wilson and Clemenceau. Um, Lloyd George thinks Woodrow Wilson is a bit too idealistic. Clemenceau doesn't trust anyone. He, he's deeply cynical. But they're sitting there day after day and they become sort of friends. Um, there's some lovely transcripts of their conversations before the formal bits start. And they compare their dreams or they talk about when they have trouble sleeping or they say whether or not they like coffee. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sort of fellow feeling develops because there are not many people in the world who have those sorts of burdens and those sorts of responsibilities. What about the League of Nations? This idea that it wouldn't just be in Paris, that actually there could be some permanent structure. Was it the beginnings of a kind of move towards global government? I think it was. Not global government so much as global cooperation. And the ideas behind the League of Nations actually had been around for quite a long time and had been discussed. In the course of the 19th century, a lot of thinkers on both sides of the Atlantic were saying, look, there must be another way to settle disputes among nations than resorting to war. And arbitration was seen, for example compulsory binding arbitration, which both states agreed to accept the result, was seen as something that might prevent future wars. Disarmament was seen also as something that might prevent future wars. And so there was a lot of talk about how do we do this. And the notion of some sort of permanent consulting body 
of nations was certainly talked about. What Woodrow Wilson did, and he was tremendously eloquent, the American president who'd also been a university professor and university president, spent a lot of time thinking about these issues. And he took those ideas and put them into a form, drawing very heavily on the European ideas and indeed previous European drafts, and talked about a League of Nations which would be like a sort of parliament. He much admired the British parliament. So you'd have an executive, a council, like a cabinet, which would be comprised of the major powers plus elected ones who'd rotate. And then you'd have an assembly, which would be like the House of Commons with different nations debating issues and so on. And you would have other ancillary organizations like the World Health, or like well, not like the World Health Organization, but its forerunner, but like the um, International Labour Organization, which would begin to deal with some of the difficulties and injustices and, and hardships in the world. And I think it was, yes, it was an idealistic program, but it was also a very practical one. The idea was to try and find ways where nations could work together to make the world a better place and not go to war. The League of Nations proved to be a disappointment eventually it was unable to prevent the outbreak of the second world war judging now 100 years later think about some of the other decisions that were made at that time i mean how enduring have they been well the settlement in the middle east has for better or worse been pretty enduring it, it came out of the paris peace conference and the details were finally hammered out in conferences post 1919 but the borders that were drawn in Paris and, and later, basically haven't changed the borders between the, the states of the Middle East. And the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine really comes out of this period as well and was recognized by the League of Nations. And so you do get a number of areas in the world where decisions made there have lasted. I think what has also come out of the Paris Peace Conference is the idea that you can have international cooperation. The League didn't work and it was seen as a failure but the powers of the world set up the United Nations. And so I think we haven't lost the idea and we're still dealing with it, we still worry about it. And so I think a very important shift takes place in thinking about the international order as a result of the First World War and the peace conference at the end. How do you mark these politicians? I mean, did they, were they wrong about reparations? Were they wrong about the economy? Could they have divided up the world in a, in a more sensible fashion rather than just creating states here and there using maps? Or do you think, on the whole, they dealt pretty well with the set of challenges that confronted them? My own feeling is they didn't do too bad a job, but they were dealing with extremely difficult circumstances. I mean, it's often said that the statesmen in Paris created the states that emerged on the map of Europe in the center of Europe, that they created a re-emerged Poland, they created a Czechoslovakia, they created a Yugoslavia. They didn't. Those states were creating themselves on the ground, and basically what they did was recognized. And yes, you can criticize them for trying to get reparations out of Germany, but they had to deal with their own publics. I mean, this is the difficulty of a democratic leader, and it's the strength also of a democratic leader. If you have your people with you, you can do a lot, but if you don't have them with you, then you cannot go too far out, or you're gonna lose the next election. And so I think that was a problem. I think there was also a problem in the United States didn't join the League of Nations. And there, I think it really comes down to, in my view, Woodrow Wilson's failure of political leadership. He refused to accept any compromises. He refused to compromise with the Republicans who wanted to attach some riders to the treaty. He refused to accept that. And the treaty which embodied the League of Nations, the Treaty of Versailles, which embodied the League of Nations, which would have meant the United States joined it if it passed the, the US Senate, was rejected in the Senate by a combination of hardline Republicans and Wilson's own Democrats who he told to vote against it because it had been modified. So it's one of those big tragedies and what ifs in history. What if the United States had been in the league? Might it have been stronger? Well, Margaret Macmillan, unlike Woodrow Wilson, who was a fellow professor, you 
could convince anyone of anything. So if you've been in charge, we'd, it'd all have been fine. Thank you very much indeed for coming on to this History Hit Live on Timeline. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, a bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money makes sense but if you could just do me a favor it's for free go to itunes or wherever you get your podcast if you give it a five star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review purge yourself give it a glowing review i'd really appreciate that it's tough weather that law of the jungle out there and uh i need all the fire support i can get so that will boost it up the charts it's so tiresome but if you could do it i'd be very very grateful thank you when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.